Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. What is it that got you interested in crypto? Man, I've been uh, obsessed with cryptozoology since I was a young boy. And I grew up in a family that was already sort of indoctrinated with science and animals. But uh, we loved monsters in my household. But when I found out about Bigfoot as a young boy, I was just hooked. And, of course, I saw the famous Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film around that time in the 70s. And um, I've just been very fortunate in my life. I've had an opportunity to travel and investigate these things. I've never had a sighting myself, and, of course, people always ask me that. However, I believe that I have been in close proximity to these creatures. I've heard them vocalize, and I've, of course, interviewed hundreds of people that have had encounters. So um, cryptozoology is just a... It's a very in-depth field. You know, most people have heard of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and Mothman, but there's a host of other mysterious creatures, lesser-known creatures that people have reported, giant snakes and uh, living pterodactyls and thunderbirds and black panthers. And so uh, there are a lot of these things, uh, cryptids we call them, uh, animals that have uh, avoided scientific detection uh, still lurking out there in the wilderness, I believe. When I first got really excited about uh, the crypto end of all of this, it was in school, grade school, when I was reading about the abominable snowman in the Himalayas. And uh, I got to believe that that's similar to Bigfoot in such a ways, even though the abominable snowman was always like white haired, we don't hear too much about that anymore. How come? Well, you know, first of all, I think there's a little bit of a misconception. I think, you know, the white-haired Yeti is something that, we, that we've kind of drawn from our different cultural influences. So most of the sightings, in fact, describe a creature that has kind of got brownish-reddish fur. And the belief that they, that they live primarily in the snow is probably also a misperception. They uh-huh. probably, in fact, inhabit the temperate valleys, the mountain valleys that are well-forested. And, we, you know, we find their footprints, of course, as they travel from valley to valley in the snow. Um, I think there are sightings still in that area. I have some colleagues that have gone over there and done research, uh, primarily not only in the Himalayas, but areas of northern India, where they're known as the Mande Burung, uh, Bhutan, where it's called the Migo, similar types of creatures. But one interesting thing about the Yeti that a lot of people don't realize, George, is that most descriptions of the Yeti uh, characterize it as a much smaller creature than Bigfoot. Uh, in fact, most sightings describe uh, a being that's only about four to five feet tall, still very powerful and, and very terrifying to the, to the local Sherpa people. Um, it could be related to Bigfoot, but it seems to be a smaller version. You know, you're right, uh, because in those earlier uh, articles that I would read as a kid, uh, it wasn't that big. It was, uh, you know, maybe a little shorter than an ape. Yeah, but still walks upright like a man, which yep. is significant. And uh, apparently very aggressive. Uh, there are many accounts of it attacking people, killing yaks, and so on and so forth. So seemingly more aggressive than the North American Bigfoot or Sasquatch. I can't remember, Ken, at what point I started realizing uh, the Bigfoot Sasquatch stories here. But when I first started hearing about them, it really uh, sparked my interest. Uh, and I believe a lot of these cases came from the Northwest. Is that correct? Yes. The vast majority of accounts stem from uh, Washington State, Oregon, Northern California. We also, of course, have a lot of sightings from British Columbia and Alaska. So the Pacific Coastal Ranges, the Cascade Ranges, produce the the vast uh, majority of sightings. However, we do have a healthy number of accounts uh, stemming from places in the eastern United States, 
Uh, curiously, states like Florida, where it's known as the skunk ape, uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio boast a lot of sightings, uh, Texas, where I live, and Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, many of the southern states. In fact, in recent years, it seems like we've been getting a lot of sightings out of places like Kentucky, North Carolina, and Georgia, and so on and so hmm. forth. So whatever these things are, they, they seem to be primarily focused or inhabiting the Pacific Northwest, but uh, there may be uh, sort of nomadic uh, individuals that are roaming across the country. Like UFO stories of the past, a lot of people who would report these kind of sightings were looked at with some kind of weary eye. I think nowadays people take these pretty seriously, don't they? Um, you know, I think it's uh, there have been some scientists that have gotten involved through the years, and I think that's been kind of really helpful to the field uh, of uh, cryptozoology in general. Uh, you know, I work with a few PhDs that are uh, at least curious in the subject, though, of course, they're still reticent about becoming too involved because it, uh, you know, it's still looked upon as a dubious thing when you're a scientist and you're getting involved with things like Bigfoot and UFOs, unfortunately. Um, but I think more people have taken the matters more seriously. Now, this is interesting, George. The vast majority of people, about 80 to 82 percent of the people population, does not think that Bigfoot could exist. They still like Bigfoot, of course. They buy Bigfoot on... In, to- in the form of toys and mm-hmm. foods and things. Only about 18 to 22 percent of the population believes that Bigfoot could exist, but I think that number is probably uh, even larger. I think most people wouldn't want to admit that they, you know, that right. something like Bigfoot could exist, but when you consider the vast wilderness areas in our planet that are still unexplored and you know, new species are still being found all the time. I, th- I think there's a lot of promise there. Well, you know, in that that's, that statistic is much lower than what ufologists would say about UFOs and extraterrestrial contact. You would think that the Bigfoot uh, people would echo the UFO people, and that it would be about the same, but I guess not. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, uh, there, there, there's a lot to be learned about human perception and different cultural influences and things, you know. Um, a lot of the UFO thing may have come through conditioning, you know, through the years we've, of course, been exposed to, you know, a number of science fiction movies and um, uh, government, uh, and, you know, mounted investigations like Project Blue Book that I think gave the UFO thing a lot of credibility, particularly early on. Uh, Bigfoot has always kind of been struggling. Bigfoot researchers have always kind of struggled in the wings in terms of trying to uh, get the attention, uh, you know, that, that that the UFO field gets in terms of, like, scientific interest and so forth. Could you say categorically at this point that Bigfoot does exist? George, what I always tell people is that I'm a, you know, I've been investigating the Bigfoot phenomenon for over four decades. Um, I'm 90% convinced that they exist. I always leave that 10% of wiggle room since I haven't seen one with my own eyes. Right. But there is literally a mountain of evidence in terms of uh, thousands of documented eyewitness reports, um, the Patterson-Gillen Bigfoot film, footprints that have been found, documented, photographed, and cast in plaster, and we have a number of those, and they have a lot of very uh, compelling features. Um, some hair samples, vocalizations, I've heard a number of those that I couldn't explain. Native American legends that date back centuries that are very uh, consistent with modern sightings. And I think when you put that all together, I think it builds a very strong case. And the last thing that I think people need to keep in mind is that things like Bigfoot actually did exist on our planet. We know this from our, our fossil history. Uh, you know, for two million years, there were these 
hair cover, presumably hair-covered man-like hominids roaming all over the planet, many different species of things that look just like Bigfoot. We found their fossils. So it's just a little bit of a stretch of the imagination to assume that maybe some of these ancient species have survived in small numbers uh, into modern times, and we just haven't found them yet. Well, and if you believe the Darwin evolutionary theory, I would think that the Bigfoot Sasquatch influence could be the missing link between ape and man. What do you think? Um, well, you know, it's it's a bushy tree. We know that. <laughs> That's one thing we're finding in paleo, uh, paleoanthropology is that the, 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 the human tree keeps growing into this big, shaggy bush, and there were all kinds of different offshoots. Um, one thing, of course, that's very notable is that Bigfoot has a, a, a locomotor system very similar to us, right? It walks with cross-limb coordination, it takes big steps, it swings its arms, it has broad shoulders. So, I mean, it, you know, that's remarkable that it, it seems to move very much like humans. Uh, and presumably they're very intelligent. I think that's one of the reasons we haven't been able to find them yet, is that they're smart enough to know that they don't want to be found by us. Um, and also many people that have had close-up sightings have described their faces as looking very, very human-like. Um, so, I mean, when you add all that together, um, you know, I, th- I think you could consider that it is definitely a hominin, something very, very close uh, to us uh, in the uh, hominin line. How tall do they get, Ken? Ah, that's a good question, because there are, you know, there's a lot of stories out there of people reporting Bigfoot 10, 12, 15 feet tall, um, now, first thing we have to recognize, George, is that people are, are actually very bad sometimes at estimating the sizes of things, particularly things that are startling to them, right, that, that really uh, shock them and get their adrenaline pumping. Um, but we have the benefit of thousands of Bigfoot sightings, and when we put them all together, a very consistent model emerges. And some studies have been done analyzing that data, and the average height for a Bigfoot, as it turns out, based on eyewitness estimates, is about seven and a half feet tall. Hmm. Um, the subject in the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film, which is called, you know, we call her Patty because she has big uh, pendulous hair-covered breasts that you can see in the film, so we know she's a female. There have been a number of academic studies on the film, um, and the conclusion there is that she stands about seven foot three inches tall. That's the consensus. And if we assume that she's a female because she has breasts, then she would be a little bit smaller than the males because all hominids, including humans and great apes, are sexually dimorphic. That is, the males are a little bit larger than the females. So in my own opinion, George, the males can get to be about 8 feet tall, maybe 9 feet tall on a really big one, and they probably weigh uh, between 500 to 1,000 pounds. That's a pretty uh, good size. Yeah, they're big. <laughs> they are they are true giants uh, based on that. Um, but you know, I, I personally discount accounts of them standing any taller than nine feet tall. Just tuning in, we're talking with Ken Gerhardt about cryptozoology. Several of his books include *The Essential Guide to Bigfoot*, *A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts*, *Encounters with Flying Humanoids*, *Mothman*, *Manbirds*, *Gargoyles*, and other winged beasts. Also, *Big Bird* and *Monsters of Texas* as well. These these creatures, and we'll get into some of the other creatures later on in the program, Ken, but what do you think the Bigfoot population could be in just North America? Yeah, well, that's another great question, because if, if these things exist, there has to be a viable breeding population, right? I mean, that's a true biological law. You look at any species, you have to have genetic 
variation and so on and so forth. So based on um, the range of a specific Bigfoot individual whose tracks were identified by a physical anthropologist in different locations, we were able to estimate that a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch might have a pretty wide range, um, probably about a thousand square mile range. And you, when you extrapolate that across North America, it actually uh, calculates out to about 4,000 individuals. Now, there's been another study that also came up with 4,000. Now, this is just speculation, but I mean, if you think about 4,000 spread across all of the continental North America from Alaska, Canada, through the United States, it's still a very, very rare animal in my own opinion. 4,000 just gives it just enough genetic viability to, you know, to have a breeding population and, um, you know, to have been around a very long time. But, of course, again, it's all speculation. The numbers may be a bit lower. Uh, but the important thing that people need to remember is that if Bigfoot does exist, their population has to, at the very least, be in the low thousands. Otherwise, it would be impossible. It would go extinct. And compared to, let's say, like deer population across North America, which has got to be into the hundreds of thousands, I would oh, guess. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the one we use, the analogy we use typically is the bear population. And Bigfoot seems to have a lot in common with bears in terms of diet, behavior patterns, habitat, and so forth. Um, so there, there are about 400,000 bears, I believe, in North America. So there's about 1,000 bears for every Bigfoot, um, you know, which is, I think, one of the reasons that we haven't been able to find you know, physical evidence of them, because they're just exceptionally rare creatures. Or we haven't gotten that great photograph either. Now, we'll get into the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film in a second, but we really haven't gotten the great photos, have we? Not really, and that's a very surprising thing. I think that that's ammunition for the skeptics. You know, when you consider how many cameras are out there, not just uh, cell phones, but also, you know, the trail cameras that, that are stationary cameras and surveillance cameras and things that are set up all over the place these days. Um, there are, of course, still alleged photographs and videos that come in on a regular basis. Uh, most of those are unfortunately too grainy or out of focus, or just not. There's just not enough detail and clarity to make a determination. So I'm, I'm getting kind of frustrated personally in terms of, uh, of you know, using photographic evidence as a potential avenue. But um, you know, there are theories that you know, perhaps again, Bigfoot has certain abilities, and not to paint it as a, as a supernatural thing, but just, you know, as, as all animals have really remarkable abilities and adaptations, Bigfoot may be able to sense things like trail cameras, because trail cameras, of course, are electronic. They give off uh, electromagnetic energy and impulses and frequencies, and some animals are able to detect those electromagnetic frequencies. Sharks, for example, are very good at, at sensing electromagnetic energy. So, um, you know, perhaps Bigfoot, is, you know, one of his adaptations may be avoiding technology, you know, something mm-hmm. that he associates with, with humankind. Some people have said, Ken, that Bigfoot is dimensional. I tend to think if it's real, it's physical. How about you? Yeah, I'm not a, a huge proponent of the interdimensional um, theories. I, I understand, you know, one of the strong arguments um, for that is, you know, what we're just discussing, which is the lack of solid photographic evidence, the lack of physical remains, a body, a bone, or anything like that. It, it, it is baffling that we haven't, that we don't have better evidence at this point. Now, it's true that there are some really weird accounts that relate to Bigfoot, 
um, mostly stemming from places like Pennsylvania and the Midwest that describe Bigfoot vanishing into thin air or trackways that, that stop in the middle of nowhere. Um, but if you look at the entire database of sightings, again, in the numbering in the thousands, the really, really weird, quote-unquote, interdimensional accounts, I would say make up less than 1% of the total percentage of, of sightings. So in my mind, I, I just don't think there's just enough evidence uh, you know, to make a case for that. Some uh, years ago, about 11 years ago, a couple people, including a police officer, uh, put their careers on the line, claimed that they had a captured Bigfoot when instead it was a rubber costume and they, I think they stuffed it with deer guts or something like that. How frustrating is stuff like that, Ken, for someone like you who does some real hard research? Oh, yeah, that's a big, a big one of the greatest challenges in Bigfoot research is dealing with the hoaxing. And it's nothing new, of course. Uh, there have been Bigfoot hoaxers dating back to the 1950s and possibly before. The, these guys were strapping, like, big wooden footprint cutting, uh, cookie cutter. And just stamping them. Stomping, yeah. <laughs> stomping around in the huh. woods and leaving footprints. People faking films. Um, and, you know, of course, with, with the availability of great technology now, that's the thing, you know, with, with things like Photoshop and, and video editing software. And, uh, you know, it, it's easier for people, I think, to, to sort of fake things. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a challenge, George. A lot of people, I think, are, uh, you know, are in it for the money, frankly. Other people just trying to get attention or, or, or trying to fool others. But it does cast kind of a dubious shadow over the entire Bigfoot field when these hoaxes get exposed. It sort of uh, gives, gives the skeptics more ammunition to say, well, you know, it's all just kind of foolishness. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.